Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum coming to you from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Gordon Stewart, minister of the church and moderator of these forums. Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective is the overarching theme of our forums beginning their 15th season today. Our guest speaker is author Amy Tan, well known for her best-selling first novel, The Joy Luck Club, a tale of four mothers, all Chinese immigrants with traumatic pasts and their Americanized daughters. Her book, both exotic and universal, has been made into a movie and has been translated into 19 languages, including Chinese. Ms. Tan's father and mother each emigrated to the United States from China in the 1940s. She was born in Oakland, California, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and earned her master's degree in linguistics from San Jose State University. Her second book, The Kitchen God's Wife, published in 1991, was also a bestseller. She now lives with her Italian-American husband, in San Francisco, where she is currently writing her third novel. We have also heard that she has been singing benefit concerts with America's most famous literary rock and roll band, the Rock Bottom Remainders, which features such popular writers as Dave Barry, Stephen King, Robert Fulgham, Barbara Kingsolver, and Roy Blunt, Jr. Amy Tan, we welcome you to the Town Hall Forum to speak or to sing your choice today <laughs> on the many voices of America. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. wonderful to be here again in um, Minneapolis. I was here with my husband about 20 years ago, and at that time we had considered moving to Minneapolis, and um, we were dissuaded against uh, doing so because of a particular reason. It had nothing to do with the fact that you have two seasons, winter and road repair. Um, it was the fact that we could not find a Chinese restaurant I have been told that since then, um, this situation has been amply corrected. But now I'm firmly ensconced in San Francisco. Well, I'm not here to talk about Chinese restaurants or road repair. I'd like to talk to you about a subject that I've been thinking about for the last two years and, and writing privately about. Um, I don't uh, uh, presume to have any answers. Rather, I hope that I provoke among you here a lot of questions. I'd like to talk about required reading and other dangerous subjects. Well, several years ago, I learned that I had passed a new literary milestone. I'd been inducted into the halls of education under the rubric of multicultural literature, otherwise known in many schools as required reading. Thanks to this new development, students now come up to me at book signings and they proudly tell me that they're doing their essays and term papers and master's theses on me. And by that I mean that they're not just analyzing my work and my books, but me, my private history and personal peccadilloes, which with the hindsight of classroom literary investigation 
proves to contain many Chinese omens that made it inevitable that I would have become a writer. When I was a student, the only writers I ever analyzed had long since passed on to that great remainder table in the sky. So those authors of bygone years could not protest what I had said about them in their books. I could write with impunity what Henry James really meant, and there was no Henry James to say, you bloody fool, if that's what I meant, that's what I would have said. <laughs> I, however, have the distinct pleasure of hearing while still alive what I really meant when I wrote The Joy Luck Club. <laughs> For example, one student discovered that my book is structured according to the four movements of a sonata. The proof lay in the fact that my parents had wanted me to become a concert pianist, as was mentioned in my author's bio on the book jacket. I learned through another student who called in-depth biographical information from very authoritative source, People Magazine, that my book was based on my numerous bad experiences with men. I showed that essay to my husband, Lou, who's been my constant and devoted companion these last 25 years. He is, by the way, not like any of the jerks in my book. <laughs> As the recipient of such academic attention, I know I'm supposed to feel honored. But what I actually feel is something more akin to shock and embarrassment. It's as though I've eavesdropped on a party conversation by a group of psychiatrists, or perhaps even proctologists, depending on how obsessive and in-depth the analysis has become. On one occasion, I met Retta Master's thesis on feminist writings, which included examples from the Joy Luck Club. The scholar noted that I had often used the number four something on the order of 32 or 36 times, in any case a number divisible by four. And accordingly, she pointed out that there were four mothers and four daughters and four sections of the book and four stories per section. Furthermore, she said there were four sides to the mahjong table, four directions of the wind, four players. More important, she postulated, my use of the number four was a symbol for the four stages of psychological development, which corresponded in uncanny ways to some sort of Buddhist philosophy I'd never heard of before. <laughs> Extending this analysis even further, the scholar recalled that the story containing a character called Fourth Wife um, symbolized death, and a four-year-old girl with a feisty spirit symbolized regeneration. There was a four-year-old boy who drowns, and perhaps because his parents were Baptists, he symbolized rebirth through death. And there was also a little girl who receives a scar on her neck at the age of four and then loses her mother and her sense of self and she symbolized crisis. In short, this literary sleuth went on to reveal a mystical and rather Byzantine puzzle which when once explained proved to be completely brilliant and precisely log logical. She wrote me a letter and asked if her analysis had been correct. <laughs> I was truly sorry I couldn't say yes. <laughs> the truth is, if I do include symbols in my work, they are carefully nudged out of their hiding places by others. I don't consciously place symbols in such clever fashion as some academics and 
scholars have given me credit for. I'm not that smart. I can't plot where I will use literary devices, posting them like freeway signs that regularly announce rest stops and scenic lookouts and the last exit before the denouement. I'm not that methodical. If I write, for example, of an orange moon rising on a dark night, I would more likely ask myself if the image is cliched rather than whether it's a symbol of the feminine force rising in anger, as one academic suggested. <laughs> All this is by way of saying that I don't claim my use of the number four to be a brilliant symbolic device. In fact, now that it's been pointed out to me in rather astonishing ways, I consider my overuse of the number four to be a flaw. <laughs> Reviewers and students have educated me as to not only how I write, but why I write. Apparently, I wish to capture the immigrant experience, to demystify Chinese culture, to show the differences between Chinese and American culture, and to pave the way for other Asian American writers and a whole host of other equally noble reasons. The truth is, I write for more self-serving reasons. That is, I write for myself. I write because I enjoy stories and make-believe. I write because if I didn't, I'd probably go crazy. Thus, I write about questions and, that disturb me and images that mystify me or memories that cause me anguish and pain. I write about secrets, lies, and contradictions because I believe that within them are many kinds of truth. In other words, I write stories about life as I have misunderstood it these past 42 years. To be sure, it's a Chinese-American life, but that's the only one I've had so far. <laughs> Contrary to what some students, professors, reporters, and fundraising organizations believe, I am not an expert on China, Chinese culture, mahjong, the psychology of mothers and daughters, generation gaps, immigration, illegal aliens, assimilation, acculturation, racial tension, mixed marriages, Tiananmen Square, the most favored nation trade agreements, human rights, Pacific Rim economics, the purported one million missing baby girls of China, the future of Hong Kong after 1997, nor, I am sorry to say, Chinese cooking. Certainly, I have personal opinions on many of these topics, especially food, but by no means do my sentiments and my world of make-believe make me an expert. And so I am alarmed when reviewers and educators assume that my very personal, specific, and fictional stories are meant to be representative down to the nth detail of not just Chinese Americans, but sometimes of all Asian culture. Is Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres supposed to be taken as representative of all American culture? If so, in what ways? Are all American fathers tyrannical? Do all American daughters serve their tyrannical fathers the same breakfast at the same hour every morning? Do all sisters betray each other? Are all conscientious objectors flaky in love relationships? Why do readers and reviewers assume that a book with Chinese-American characters can encompass all the demographics and personal histories of Chinese America? 
My editor tells me that over the years, she's received hundreds of requests from publishers of college textbooks who all want to reprint my work for educational purposes, oftentimes for multicultural anthologies. One excerpt from the Joy Luck Club is particularly popular. It's the one that, um, in which a woman invites her non-Chinese boyfriend over to her mother's house for dinner, and uh, the boyfriend brings a bottle of wine as a gift and commits a number of social gaffes at the dinner table. Well, in one case, students were supposed to read this excerpt and then answer the following question. Now, see if you get the answer right. If you were invited to a Chinese family's house for dinner, should you bring a bottle of wine? <laughs> My editor and I both agreed to turn down that permissions request. I hear that my books and essays are now on the required reading list for courses such as ethnic studies, Asian American studies, Asian American literature, Asian American history, women's literature, feminist studies, feminist writers of color, and so forth. I'm very proud to be on these lists. What writer wouldn't want her work to be read? But there's a small nagging question that whispers in my ear every once in a while. What about American fiction. I know I'm not supposed to complain, at least not too loudly, and certainly not in public. After all, I am one of the lucky writers to be read, extremely lucky, and not just in the classrooms, but in the mainstream, and I've heard recently in Cliff Notes. <laughs> I have had many readers tell me that they read my books because they feel the stories are about universal emotions between mothers and daughters. But as my mother has often told me, I have an attitude. <laughs> I have an attitude not just about my books, but about literature in general. I have an attitude that American literature, if such a category exists, should be more democratic than the color of your skin or whether rice or potatoes are served at your fictional dinner table. And so I ask myself and sometimes others, what is American literature? Why is it that works of fiction by minority writers are read mainly for the study of class, gender, and race? Why is it so hard to break out of this literary ghetto? Well, let me suggest one reason. I was at a conference a couple of years ago during which an official from the California State Department of Education came up to me and said, by the way, your books were recently approved for our state's multicultural recommended reading list for high schools. And I smiled, but perhaps I didn't look sufficiently impressed, so she went on to say, our criteria are very stringent. For a book to make it onto the list, it has to pass through a gauntlet of educators who must agree that the book under consideration will provide a positive and meaningful portrayal of the culture it represents. Well, I didn't know what to say to her because it was rather like having the Surgeon General tell me that I had proved that cigarettes are actually a wholesome, healthy habit. <laughs> so instead, I simply nodded, realizing that my books are contributing to dangerous changes in the way people view literature. In fact, university friends tell me that arguments are being staged right now in the halls of education and ethnic studies programs over which books are more valuable than others, all based on the so-called stringent criteria concerning positive and meaningful 
hurtful portrayals of the cultures they're supposed to represent. Factions within minority groups have sprung up, and the different sides throw sticks and stones at one another as they argue over what literature is supposed to mean and represent and do. And a growing number of readers, educated readers, now choose fiction like cans of soup from a grocery shelf. If the book is labeled ethnic, it must contain specific ingredients, a narrative right with lessons on culture, wholesome characters who provide positive role models, hand-picked themes and ideas, and language that contains only artificial ethnic correctness. Recently, I talked to just a reader, an agent, not my agent, but a young agent, perhaps five years out of college. I love your books. They're so educational, she said to me. And then she asked, what will your next book teach us? What's the lesson? And I told her, I don't write books to teach people anything. If readers learn something, that's their own doing. The agent said, really? But don't you think you have a responsibility as a minority writer to teach other people about Chinese culture? Her comment reminded me that if you are a minority, your work may not be read in the same way as, say, Ann Tyler or John Updike or Sue Grafton. In other words, your stories may not be read as literary fiction or as American fiction or as entertainment. They will more likely be read as sociology, politics, ideology, cultural lesson plans in a narrative form. Your fiction will likely not be allowed to reside in the larger world of imagination. It will be assigned to a territory of multicultural subject matter. I know this is happening because I've received the student papers, the one marked with an A for excellent analysis between Chinese and American cultures. It also disturbs me whenever I hear people dictating what literature must do and mean and say. And it infuriates me when people use the so-called authority of their race, gender, and class to stipulate who should write what and why. The prohibitions come in many forms. You can't write about lesbians unless you're lesbian. You can't write about Native Americans unless you are at least 25% Native American and a registered member of your tribe. You can't write about African-Americans or Asian-American males unless the portrayals are positive. You can't write about Hindus unless you are a member of the lower caste. You can't write about Latinos unless you still live in the barrio. And the mandates are just as strong. If you're gay, you must write about AIDS and explicit safe sex. If you are Asian-American, you must write about modern, progressive images, no harkening back to the good old day, bad old days. If you are African-American, you must write about oppression and racism. And who are you to question these mandates if you're not a member of the particular, mi particular minority group at issue? I'm hearing this kind of ethnic authority invoked more often these days. It's as though a more insidious form of censorship has crept into the fold, winning followers by wearing the cloak of good intentions and ethnic correctness. The advocates of the cause point to the tiresome stereotypes reproduced in textbooks over the years. They ask, why are Chinese people in American history books portrayed only as faceless railroad workers? Why should we read Hemingway when the facts now show he was a misogynist and an anti-Semite? Well, the question is not 
whether stereotypes and misogyny and racism are to be condoned. It has to do with whether literature must serve as the horse and cart that hauls away these human ills. Can we actually eliminate racism by censoring it in fiction? Did the Bolsheviks and the Chinese Red Guard improve the standards of their literature by mandating what should be written and why? When I was a teenager, did I heed my minister's warning about Catcher in the Rye when he described it as wicked, perverse, and harmful to my mental health? Yet there are those who argue that some forms of American literature, especially those with ethnic content, must toe some sort of political line. And if you disagree with them, it's not easy to parry with your own arguments. For one thing, anytime you talk about ethnicity, you are in danger of tripping over terminology and landing in the battleground called racism. And in the unstable arena of ethnicity and race, well, there is no common language that everyone agrees on. Consider the many terms that the media has used to describe me. Amy Tan, the Chinese-American writer, the ethnic writer, the minority writer, a new voice in third world writing, a writer of color, a writer of immigrant literature. From person to person, and especially from writer to writer, these terms carry different emotional and political weight. Actually, if I had to give myself any sort of label, I would call myself an American writer. I am Chinese by racial heritage. I am Chinese American by social upbringing and family values. But I believe that what I write is American fiction by virtue of the fact that I live in this country and my emotional sensibilities, assumptions, and obsessions are largely American. My characters may be largely Chinese-American, but I happen to think Chinese-Americans are part of America. As an aside, I must tell you that writer of color is a term I personally dislike. Because in terms of color, Chinese people have always been referred to as yellow, the color associated with cowardice and jaundice and bananas and Ping the Duck. <laughs> and the middle-class Marvin Gardens in Monopoly. <laughs> I'd much prefer a term such as colorful writers, which seems to refer more to the writing itself. Or how about writers of different flavors? Cuisine is probably a much closer indicator of differences in literary tastes than skin color. Writers of color is also an exclusionary term. You're not a member if your skin's too pale, and Yet perhaps the same issues face you if you're a writer who is, say, Armenian-American or gay or lesbian or woman. Whatever we are called, as a result of common experiences, both bad and humorous, we often have an affinity with one another. We're segregated in the same ways. Consider the way that books are reviewed. More often than not, if a book is by an Asian-American writer, an Asian-American is signed by the newspaper or magazine editor to review it. Now, on the surface, this seems to make sense. An Asian-American reviewer may be more attuned to the themes and meanings of the book, never mind that the reviewer is a professor of history and not a fiction writer and possibly not even a fiction reader. But a reader who is a reviewer is thus qualified may 
dwell more on historical accuracy and things like that rather than the book's literary merits. For instance, the language and the characters, the imagery, the storytelling qualities that seduce the reader into believing the tale is true. The review may be favorable, but it casts the book outside the realm of literature. And woe to you if the reviewer is someone who champions both ethnic correctness and marginalism, who believes your fiction should not depict violence, sexual abuse, mixed marriages, superstitions, Chinese as Christians, or mothers who speak in broken English. One reviewer of The Kitchen's God's Wife said, using the mother to tell of her life in China has deprived Tan of the full resources and muscularity of the native English language speaker. Well, I wished I could have replied to that reviewer exactly, and I did so because my own mother has long been deprived of telling her story, this story, because she lacked those native English language skills. Reviews have also done much to reinforce the idea that any book by an Asian American writer is part of the same genre. If two or more books by Asian American writers are published in the same year, more likely than not, the book review editor will assign those books to be reviewed simultaneously by one reviewer. More likely than not, the reviewer will compare the books, even though they may have nothing in common except that both were written by Asian Americans. And so you have Gus Lee's book, China Boy, being compared with Gish Jen's Typical American, and David Wong Lui's Pangs of Love compared to Faye Mayaning's Bone, and so forth. The underlying message to the reader is this. These books are similar, but one book is better. Pick one. Some reviewers tend to reduce these books to the most obvious and general abstractions, the themes of immigration and assimilation. They overlook the specifics of narrative detail, language, imagery, that make the story and the characters unlike any that's ever been written before. I was talking about this trend to a friend of mine, a reporter who writes on literary matters and wears the badge of realist. He said that we writers shouldn't complain. Any attention is valuable, he said. You can't demand attention. If you receive any, you should be grateful for what you get, good or bad, lumped together or not. The new writers, he said, would never get that kind of attention unless they were grouped together for an angle. The media need an angle. Culture is the angle. A new wave in Asian American literature is the angle. They are not going to feature the new writers separately as the next Joyce Carol Oates or Raymond Carver. They're not going to devote column inches to talking about the beauty of their prose and the cleverness of their characterization. That's not topical. That's not interesting. And as to books being compared one to another, he said, there's a rational argument for that. Readers do the same thing. They categorize and compare. They ask themselves, do I want to read a mystery or a book about China, mothers and daughters, or warlords and evil empresses? Consider yourself lucky, my friend advised. Actually, I have been lucky in this regard. After the success of the Joy Luck Club, my books are now usually reviewed alone and not alongside another book by an Asian American writer. More often than not, my books are reviewed by fiction writers who may or may not be Asian Americans. They are writers or reviewers of fiction, first and foremost. And so they do discuss the literary merits and faults of my books 
and don't focus exclusively on customs and superstitions and positive role models. And for that, I am grateful. Nonetheless, I do still get the occasional review that categorically lumps me with other writers purely on the basis of race and culture. And here's what one reviewer with the Daily New York Times had to say about The Kitchen God's Wife. It competes unsuccessfully with novels like Malcolm Boss's Warlord, Gary Jennings' Journeyer, and the works of James Clavell, Maxine Hong Kingston in The Woman Wire, and China Men, Betty Ballord in Legacies, A Chinese Mosaic, and Nian Ching in Life and Death in Shanghai, which have covered similar territory in greater depth. I mentioned this to Betty Ballord, and we both found ourselves asking out loud, what's been covered before? China? Suffering? A mother's death? Love? Pain? I wasn't disagreeing with the reviewer's conclusion. Those other books he cited might have been better. But what exactly was the basis of the comparison? And why was Warlord on the list? <laughs> I've had unfavorable reviews before, but this one struck me as, dare I say the word, racist. The point is, minority writers tend to be perceived differently from their white colleagues. We have some sort of pre-assigned responsibility and territory. No wonder, then, that I'm frequently asked questions about the responsibility of the writer. The assumption is that the writer, any writer actually, is responsible by virtue of being published to the reader. Now, according to this ethic, the writer's musings, his or her imagination, and delights in the world of make-believe are to be shaped and tamed according to a higher consciousness of how the work might be interpreted or even misinterpreted by the reader. God forbid that some reader in some remote Texas hamlet might believe that all Chinese men have concubines or that all Chinese mothers speak in broken English or that all Chinese kids um, become chess grandmasters. I once met a professor of literature who teaches at a school in Southern California. He told me that he uses my books in his literature classes, but he makes it a point to lambast those passages that depict China as backward or unattractive. In other words, he objected to any descriptions that had to do with spitting, filth, poverty, or superstitions. I asked him if China in the 1930s and 40s were, was free of these elements, and he said, no, that the descriptions were true. But he still believed it was the obligation of the writer of ethnic literature to create positive, progressive images. I secretly shuddered and thought, oh, well, that's Southern California for you. <laughs> but then a short time later, I met a student from UC Berkeley, which is a school I also went to. The student was standing in a line during a book signing, and when his turn arrived, he swaggered up to me and then took two steps back and said in a loud voice so everyone could hear, don't you think you have the responsibility to write about positive male role models? In her contributor's notes to a short story, The Girl on the Plane, which appeared in the 1993 Best American Short Stories, edited, by the way, by your uh, Louise Erdrich, in my opinion, she said, most of us have not been taught how to be responsible for our thoughts and feelings. 
I see this strongly in the widespread tendency to read books and stories as if they exist to conform, confirm how we are supposed to be, think, and feel. I'm not talking about wacky political correctness. I'm talking mainstream. Ladies and gentlemen, please stop asking, what am I supposed to feel? Why would an adult look to me or any other writer to tell him or her what to feel? You're not supposed to feel anything. You feel what you feel. Where you go with it is your responsibility. If a writer chooses to aggressively let you know what he or she feels, where you go with it is still your responsibility. I agree with Barry Gateskill's sentiments. If writers were responsible for people's thoughts and for creating positive role models, we would be in the business of writing propaganda, not fiction. Propaganda tells you how to think. Fiction makes you think. Yet there are writers and literary academics who believe that's what fiction should do, tell people how to think. These writers and critics believe, for example, that if you're Asian American, you should write about contemporary Asian Americans, none of that old China stuff, and that your work should be exclusively for Asian Americans and not a mainstream audience. If your work is inaccessible to white readers, that's proof that it's authentic. If it's read by white people, that's proof the work is a fake, a sellout, and hence the writer is to be treated as a traitor, publicly branded and condemned. Now, while the numbers within this faction are quite small, their influence in academia and the media is substantial. When they shout for attention, they receive it. To wit, a couple of years ago, I was at a conference on Asian Americans in the arts. A professor of literature spoke passionately into the microphone about the importance, the necessity of Asian Americans maintaining our marginalism. She rallied the crowd to believe it was the responsibility of Asian American writers and artists to re remain apart from the mainstream. She believed in a Marxist model of thinking for minorities, that the dominant class was the enemy and that minorities should work separately from them as part of the struggle. There is strength in marginalism, she shouted, and most of the audience applauded wildly. At a Modern Language Association conference recently, an entire session was devoted to Bharti Mukherjee's writing. She is the author of uh, The Middleman and Other Stories and The Holder of the World, among others. The gist of the agenda, why Mukherjee's class, caste, citizenship, and assimilationist ideas made her wholly inappropriate to write about people from India. In another public forum, an Asian-American writer condemned my work for appealing to the mainstream. He called me something like, a running dog whore sucking on the tit of the imperialist white pigs. <laughs> Love that description. He said that if he ever met me personally, he'd like to beat me up. He doesn't know I've been working out at the gym. At a recent short story conference, I heard a professor of literature say she does not use books that reflect a just-like-us message, meaning the book should not promote the idea that Chinese or Latino or African-American people are just like other Americans in their conflicts with parents, their attitudes toward pets, or their grief in losing a loved one. Just like us, she said, is an assimilationist point of view that assumes the us is the white dominant society. 
I never assumed that. To me, that kind of prescribed thinking is frightening, a form of literary fascism. It is completely antithetical to why I write, which is to express myself freely in whatever direction or form I wish. I can't imagine being a writer and have others dictating to me what I should write and why. And this is the reason I consider myself an American writer. I have the freedom to write whatever I want, and I claim that freedom. I've been trying to understand why these separatist factions sprang up in the first place. I suspect they have their origins in bitterness and frustration in being excluded for so many years. I've experienced those same feelings in my life, growing up Chinese-American in a largely white community. As a teenager, for example, I suspected that the real reason why nobody asked me to dance was because I was Chinese and not because I was a nerd. <laughs> As a cynical college student, I realized my forefathers never ate turkey and never slid down chimneys dressed in red costumes. In my 20s, I joined various specific Asian groups and became an activist for multicultural training programs for special educators. If not for a few circumstances that led to where I am today, would I have become one of those activists for ethnically correct literature? If I hadn't found my voice in a published book, would I too have been shouting from this podium that there is strength in marginalism? If I had written book after book starting in the 70s and none of them had been published or reviewed, would I have also been tempted to think there was a conspiracy going on in the publishing industry? Would I have believed that those Asian Americans who did get published and reviewed had sold their souls and were serving up a literary version of chop suey for American palates? As I thought about those questions, I remembered when I was an English major in 1970, at a time, by the way, that when there were fewer than 450,000 Chinese Americans in the United States, including Hawaii, compared to 7.2 million today. In the American literature classes I took, I read Hemingway and Faulkner, Fitzgerald, Sinclair Lewis, Theodore Dreiser, so forth. No American writers who were women or minorities. It didn't bother me, or rather, it didn't question that it could be any other way. In fact, during those years that I was an English major, the only female novelist I read was Virginia Woolf. I originally thought there had been another, Evelyn Waugh, but I later discovered the truth that this very British writer was in fact a man. The only minority writers I read were in a separate summer class I took called Black Literature, which is where I read Richard Wright and Ralph Ellison, but again, no books by women. I didn't even consider there was such a thing as a book by an Asian-American woman. Maxine Hong Kingston's book, Woman, woman Warrior, didn't come out until 1976. Back in my college days in the early 70s, we were also politicizing fiction. That's not new. When I read An American Tragedy or The Grapes of Wrath, Babbitt, or Tenders of the Night, I too was required to look at character flaws as symbols of social ills. I became adept at writing those weekly papers, alluding to the trickier symbols and subtle themes that I knew would please my professors. I could tell by the tone of their lectures which writers they admired and which ones we just had to read because 
uh, should we become one day literary cr critics, we'd know how to properly heap scorn. And thus, I would wade through each semester's stack of required reading, pen in hand, ready to catch those symbols and social themes with about the same focus as a gardener looking for snails and leaf rot. When I completed my literature requirements in 1971, I stopped reading fiction because what I had once loved, I no longer enjoyed. I didn't start reading fiction again until 1985. I don't think it was coincidence that most of what I read was by women writers. Flannery O'Connor, Isabel Allende, Louise Erdrich, Eudora Welty, Lori Colwin, Alice Adams, Amy Hempel, Toni Morrison, Lori Moore, Harriet Dorr, Molly Giles. I was not gender exclusive. I also read works by Garcia Marquez and Richard Ford, Tobias Wolfe, and David Levitt. But mostly I read fiction by women simply because I had so rarely read a book by a woman in my adult years, and I found I enjoyed their sensibilities, their voices, and what they had to say about the world. I was feeling again the thrill I had as a child, choosing my own books, falling in love with characters, reading stories because I couldn't stop myself. In fact, I kept reading day and night until I couldn't stop myself from writing. When I was first published in 1989 at the advanced age of 37, interviewers kept asking me why I waited so long to write fiction. I could only answer, it never occurred to me that I could. Now by that, I didn't mean I lacked the desire. In part, I didn't think I could because I didn't have an encyclopedic-sized vocabulary available at the tip of my tongue. I didn't have the disposition to think up tricky symbols and plant them in carefully tilled sentences. I felt my life had been dull and limited and my stories would be likewise. And yes, in part, I didn't think I could because I was neither an expert on white whales or white males. <laughs> the idea of my becoming a published fiction writer was as ludicrous as, say, my wearing a dominatrix costume and singing rock and roll on stage at the Los Angeles Palladium with Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> which, by the way, I recently did. <laughs> Suffice it to say, I thought that the books that appeared on required reading lists were an absolute indication of what was worthy of being read and hence what was worthy of being written. Now this short history of my educational background is to say I understand many of the reasons professors and students campaign for the inclusion of ethnic studies and women's studies, Asian American studies. I understand why they had to create separate departments, separate and as equal as they could make them. I appreciate the inclusion of my books on their lists, and I think they've done a great deal to make progress in the area of race and culture. But I worry about the various directions in which literature seems to be heading. I worry about separatism in literature, that we'll have some works of fiction called American fiction, and other works of fiction with subcategories. And those categories will continue to limit readership. I worry that the books chosen to be on required reading lists will increasingly be those that have been approved because they contain themes and ideas that everybody agrees but, upon, rather than books that contain stories or ideas that provoke argument 
disagreement, discussion, and thought. I worry that required reading is leading to required writing, that some new writers will believe, as I did for so long, that you can write only about certain subjects and characters, themes and ideas. I worry that the majority of Americans no longer read for pleasure, that it is only you in the audience who now represent the something like 0.001% of Americans who buy one book each year. And I look at you and I wonder, do you love to read as much as I love to write? By now, I'm sure some of you are wondering, well, what exactly does Amy Tan think about required reading? Is she saying she does or doesn't want her books included on the list? If I tell her I liked her books because I learned a lot about Chinese culture, will she bite my head off? <laughs> if I tell her Chinese mothers are Jewish, like Jewish mothers, will she call me a separatist or an anti-Semite? I'm not trying to add to the list of proscribed or prescribed thinking. The purpose of my talk is to simply encourage you and me to think about two questions important to American literature in the 21st century. Why do readers read? Why do writers write? Until recently, I didn't think it was important for writers to express their private intentions in order for their work to be appreciated. My domain is storytelling, and I believe the analysis of my work was the domain of literature classes. But I've come to realize that the study of literature does have its effect on how books are being read, and thus what might be read, published, and hence written in the future. And for that reason, I do believe writers today must talk about their reasons for writing. For one thing, to serve as an antidote to what others define as to what our reasons should be. And so I'd like you to think about the reasons you read as I tell you the reasons I write. I write because I once believed I couldn't describe the way a cloud looks, but now I can by how it feels. I write because I have been in love with words since I was a child. I hoarded words from the thesaurus and the dictionary as though they were magic gems, emeralds masquerading as Coca-Cola glass. I loved metaphors and used them before I ever knew what the word metaphor meant. I thought of metaphors as secret passageways to the imaginary part of myself that lived in another world. I played with my imagination the way young girls played with their Barbies and young boys played with their penises. I dressed it up, changed it a dozen times, manipulated it, tugged at it, wondered if it would enlarge and pulsate until others noticed it too. I thought of my imagination as a weapon, a secret, a sin, an incorrigible vice. I write because I have qualities in my nature shaped by my past, a past that included a secret family legacy of suicide, forced marriages, and abandoned children in China, a past that included a chaotic upbringing of no fewer than 15 residences ranging from tough neighborhoods in Oakland to the snobby environs of Montreux, Switzerland, a past that comprised two conflicting religions that made me both cynical yet hopeful of miracles. Through words, I can resurrect those whom I've loved and have now died. 
Through sentences, I can change the endings, the reasons for the endings, the circumstances that led to the reasons. Through images, I can change fate. Writing is a sort of freedom and danger, satisfaction and discomfort, truth and contradiction I can't find in anything else in life. I also write stories because I have questions about life, not answers. I believe life is mysterious and not dissectable. I think human nature is best described in a long-winded story and not in a psychoanalytical diagnosis. I can't paraphrase or give succinct morals about love and hope, pain and loss. I have to use a mental longhand and ponder and work it out in the form of a story that is revised over and over again until it finally feels true. I write for very much the same reasons I read, to startle my mind, to churn my heart, to tingle my spine, to knock the blinders off my eyes and allow me to see beyond the pale. Though I'm surrounded by friends and family, I often feel lonely. Fiction is my confidant and companion for life. To me, writing is an act of faith, a hope that I will discover what I mean by emotional truth. But I don't know what that will be until I finish. I can't determine it ahead of time. And more often than not, I can't summarize what it is I've discovered. It's simply a feeling. The feeling is the entire story. To paraphrase the feeling or to analyze the story reduces the feeling for me. I also think of reading as an act of faith. I hope I will discover something remarkable about ordinary life, about myself. And if the writer and the reader discover the same thing, if they have that connection, the act of faith has resulted in an act of magic. To me, that's the mystery and the wonder of both life and fiction, the connection between two unique individuals who discover in the end that they are more the same than they are different. And if a student came up to me and simply said, your book was on our required reading list, but hey, I liked it anyway, <laughs> I'd be more than pleased. I'd be grateful. Thanks for listening. Thank you. It has been said that we live in a world of shouters and yellers. Would you say more about how, how it is in a world where those who shout the loudest tend to get the attention that people here, all of us, can learn to discover our own voices out of our own experience? I think in this day and age when so much is happening, it takes somebody who shocks us for us to listen. And oftentimes it's those quiet words that go by unnoticed, especially in books. Um, but I have experienced shouting in places like at a podium. My father was a minister. And so um, I think sometimes I, I've come to realize that even though I'm a person with, uh, who used to have a very quiet voice, particularly about this subject, 
that there are times when it's appropriate to come out and say what you truly believe. Um, and I think there'll be more writers in the, in the future who will come out and express thoughts about this. One of the questions prepared in advance is, uh, what are your feelings about the Eurocentric focus of most textbooks which are currently prevailing in our educational system? I would ask, do you, do you agree with that premise that they are essentially Eurocentric? Uh, and uh, if so, would you speak about it? And if not, expand on, on your uh, comments about ethnic correctness. Well, as I said in my speech, I'm not an expert on multicultural education. Um, and I haven't picked up a textbook in more than 20 years, so it's hard for me to comment on this. Um, I think it, you know, this is a situation that varies so much from school to school, community to community, from community to community. Um, I know, for example, um, that in, in the case of my own family, my niece is going to a school in which 50% of the classes are conducted in Mandarin, and the other half in English, and by second grade, 80% are in Mandarin. And that's about as multicultural as you can get, where the students are from all parts of the world. Um, but I, I, I don't have an answer, and I think the reason why I wanted to give this talk was in hopes that people out there today who are in education, who are students, would think about these questions and find the answers. How do we overcome stereotypes and a disproportionate amount of attention given to one culture over another, and yet not categorize these, these cultures, not fit them into slots? How do we make them part of our overall tapestry of American life? And I think that's going to involve people getting together and deciding what is American culture. Thank you. When you look back on your early days in San Francisco, learning and struggling as an Asian American writer artist, how has your perspective on your, your own identity and the image of yourself changed and matured since then? Has mainstream success affected your writing, and if so, how? I must say that when I first started writing, I did what I think a lot of writers do, and that's write what I thought people wanted to see and read. I wrote about a character who was a German-American who lived in Boston and whose father was a professor of MIT, whose mother went to um, country clubs. I mean, so far from the truth of the Joy Luck Club. Um, and I realized that you have to want to, to write for your own reasons, and, and those were so boring to me. Um, they didn't mean anything. And um, I found a personal reason for writing, and it didn't matter whether I got published. And that's what I, it was a valuable lesson um, on writing. I often feel like there are some guardian angels or something guiding me in the right direction through little flukes in my life. One of them was the, what I thought was the near death of my mother, which um, gave me this impetus to write The Joy Luck Club. Um, since being published, I have only become aware of these issues of being an Asian American writer, what it means to be read in the mainstream, and sort of looking at it in hindsight. And because so many people ask this question, is this a trend in literature, these new Asian American writers, I've started to think about how can we not make it simply a trend?
One way to view the Joy Luck Club is as a celebration of the strength and integrity of Chinese women. In your view, have Chinese women historically played the exceptional roles in Chinese society as the women portrayed in your book? Well, I think some indication of, of the accomplishments of women might be noted by the fact that in classical Chinese poetry, there were some women poets who were known by name, but there was a whole series of them known as Lady Knight. They were anonymous, and they wrote poetry that way, and I think it doesn't make them any less accomplished, but women have often done things anonymously. Uh, in China, I feel that women have been the conveyor of stories of the family and, and the the strengths. I, I don't know where this image of the frail, demure, shy Chinese woman came from, because I have never seen that in any woman in my family. <laughs> um, she can make, my mother and my aunts and all that can make any man, no matter what race or culture, cower with fear. <laughs> or buy them a condominium or something. Um, but I, I think that the roles of Chinese women, you know, really depend on what culture we're talking about. And in China, it's certainly changed by the kind of society and government that they have there. Women have the right, for example, to divorce. But I don't think it's as egalitarian as, as a lot of people believe and as, as they like to say. Um, with unemployment there, for example, the tendency is to give the jobs that do become available to men because when they are not busy, they say, they make more trouble. Um, no. I'm told that uh, we are at the end of our time and uh, we will not have the opportunity to hear the answer to your question in your dispute with uh, with your Italian-American husband as to whether or not ravioli is from Italy or from China. But <laughs> I want to thank you on behalf of all of us for being here, Ms. Tan.